I told some folks yesterday who were here at church with us cleaning and getting the electronics hooked up and everything. God changed my sermon on me the last of the week. I, I had a, I thought a pretty good one. And I was sure that he had given me every bit of it. But yesterday he changed it. He said, don't throw the other one away. We'll need it sooner. But I got one I want you to handle. And when I got through with it, to put a title on it, Anthony has taught me that I need to put a title on everything because when people pull it up on the internet, they stop and listen to a sermon a lot of times by the title that it has. So this one, I put the title on it, The Hardest Lesson I Ever Had. With all of my relationship with Jesus since I was 10 years old. Well, he was working with me before then. But I walked the aisle when I was 10 in October. And I've been dealing with him ever since then. And you know, it's a, I don't know about you, but some kind of way I was raised in church. As one fellow said, as a child he had a drug problem. His mama drug him to church every time the door was open. Well, I was kind of one of those, I guess. But uh, nobody ever told me what it would be like to be a Christian. They didn't tell me the things that I would be responsible for, the things that I would have to learn to do. And since I've been called to preach, it has seemed like that it's been my ministry that God has used me to tell folks what it's like to be a Christian and what God expects of us as a Christian. And this was my hardest lesson. And I want to share it with you this morning because there's some things I want you to see and understand. We're going to have scripture from Psalms and because of that I wanted you to remember who David was. David wrote most of the Psalms. When the, God sent the prophet to get a new king for Israel. He went to this man and the man showed him all 11 of his sons. Because the prophet had been told that it was one of this man's sons that would be crowned the new king of Israel. And all of them looked to him like they would really be good kings. But God kept saying, no, it's not this one. He'd bring another one. He'd say, nope, it's not that one. So he looked at the old man. He said, do you have any other boys anywhere? He said, yeah, I've got one, but he's out looking after the sheep. He's my youngest one. His name is David. He said, well, go get him. It says in Acts chapter 22 that God was so displeased with King Saul 
the man who held the position at the time that he called David to be his new king. And it was a while before David got to sit on the throne. But it says in Acts chapter 22 that God went and found a man after his own heart. Well, every time I study about David, I try to figure out what did God mean by that. That's the only person in the Bible he said that about, that David was a man after his own heart. Because the thing that come to our mind is when we first saw David, first heard him talking, we found out he had killed a bear with his bare hands looking after the sheep. He killed a lion with his bare hands and he killed Goliath with five little rocks but he didn't have to use but one of them. And God wouldn't let him build the temple at Jerusalem because he was a what God called a man of war. David was what I call a combatant. David had to some extent what they used to refer to as a gunfighter's ideology. He would not bother you. He respected you for everything you were and he wouldn't bother you or anything you had. But he wouldn't allow you to bother him either. <laughs> And I'll tell you what, he could come out with his sword before anybody else. He had it out quicker than Peter did. But the only thing about David, David didn't cut anybody's ear off aiming at their head. If he went for their head, he got their head. And because David was a combatant, or a person who would fight you, I've wondered if, is God like that? But I learned something else this week in looking at that situation. God is a person who doesn't allow anybody to mess with him. Maybe that's what he liked about David. I don't know. But he called him. a man after my own heart. Now something you got to understand, there's no way David could have killed the lion and the bear and Goliath without God's help, so God was right there with him helping. God, I believe, is the one who directed that stone to bury up in that giant's head right between his eyes. So with that as the introduction, if you'll turn to the 18th chapter of Psalms, we're going to read a psalm that David wrote about his relationship with God. A man after God's own heart. The 18th chapter of Psalms, and we'll start about verse 20. Well, I'll say this. Look at, look at 19. He offers a bit of information there. Psalms 18, 19. David said, God brought me forth also into a large place. He made him king of Israel. 
of His chosen people. He delivered me because He delighted in me. Now what I tried to explain last week is God does not need any of us people. He doesn't need me. He doesn't need you. He doesn't need your money. He wants you to give your money to Him because of what it does for you, not because of what it does for Him. He said in another place in Psalms, I've got the beast of the field. I know the birds of the air. All those are mine. I own the cattle on a thousand hills. And I've heard that preached in my life 25 times probably. I've never heard the next verse preached not one time. The next verse God says, if I got hungry, I wouldn't call you. God doesn't need us. But he wanted us. He wanted you and he wanted me and that makes a difference. I'm not there because he needed me. He had to have me. He could have done what he did with me with anybody. But he wanted me. And he wants you. And that's what makes us so special. Verse 20 David said, The Lord rewarded me according to my righteousness, according to the cleanness of my hands, hath he recompensed me. That word recompense means payback. You get what you got coming. Payback. David said, God has treated me like I tried to be a person for him. For I have kept the ways of the Lord and have not wickedly departed from my God. Well, we know he did with Bathsheba and we know he did with some other things. One time he counted all his soldiers after God had told him not to and God killed 83,000 of David's soldiers because David counted them. That gives you another little insight into the God that we serve. may not be just exactly like you got him in your mind. For all his judgments were before me, and I did not put away his statutes from me. He said, I didn't forget any of his rules. All his laws were right in front of me. I had the rule book in my hand. And I did what I knew to do. I was also upright before him, and I kept myself from mine iniquity. There's about eight or nine words in the Bible that are translated sin. Iniquity is one of them. Iniquity is a word that comes from the same word that torque comes from. Some of you know what it means to torque something. You twist something. And the word iniquity is from the word to twist in the Hebrew. And it pertains primarily, it's sin like the rest of them are, but it speaks primarily of people taking the word of God and trying to twist it a little bit. And my, have they done that. 
we try to take the words of the Bible and make it fit into what our mind says is going on, where it will meet our expectations. And it don't always work that way. I kept myself from mine iniquity. David says, I kept myself. What have we been talking about here about self-control? He said, I kept myself from doing my sin. What I wanted to do, I didn't allow myself to do it because I knew it would get me in trouble with God. Therefore, because of all this, he's saying, in verse 24, Therefore hath the Lord recompensed me according to my righteousness, according to the cleanness of my hands in his sight. I've got those three words in my Bible, highlighted with yellow and underlined with bold black. In his sight. In his eyesight. In other words, David said he treated me like I was trying to treat him in the way that he looks at things. Not me. The way he looks at it. So many times we try to explain scripture in this way that we look at things. And I've already read God said your ways are not my ways. My ways are as far from your ways as heaven is from earth. Man's goings, our steps, our traveling around is of the Lord as a Christian. It says then, how then can a man know his own way? If God is directing you to do the things that you do, how then can you predict what you're going to do? Well, if you're following Jesus, you can't. <laughs> there it is. It's what I've said. Living for God is not a system of rules that you can learn in church and go home and remember, and as long as you do them, everything will be okay. It's not that way. Every single morning that you wake up, you've got a new day ahead of you. In the Lord's Prayer, we are praying, Thy kingdom come, Lord, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Well, it applies, give us this day, it applies to his kingdom too. So today, Lord, is what I'm praying for. Guide me today so I'll be able to live through this day like you want me to. One day at a time. And we have to meet all kind of different things that day. And if we're not constantly hooked up to Jesus through the Holy Spirit, we won't get directions about what kind of decisions to make about that day. I want to share something with you that God gave me about 40 years ago. I've shared it two or three times, I guess. 
I call it a Joe Clark parable. It's one of those stories that Jesus told. It's like that, but God showed me. I want you to understand about this. And this is the way he showed me. He said there was a young man who had a nice wife and some small children, took a new job as a salesman, but it required that he travel. So he traveled to little towns all over the country, stopping at this store or that store to get orders for his product. He was in one of those little towns like that in the south in the summer. It wasn't too bad a day. It was a pleasant day to be out, and he was just walking around the edges of that town on the sidewalk, and he came across this group of people that was playing ball in a vacant lot. Wasn't a very big lot, but there's a bunch of little kids playing. But he noticed that there were some grown-ups playing with them. And so he went over and sat down, and one or two fellows spoke to him, and he spoke to them and whatever. One of them turned and asked him, would you like to play ball with us? He said, oh yeah, I'd love to. He said, well get up and get you a bat. He said, you're next at bat. So this guy was pitching the ball to him, and the second ball that was thrown to him, he knocked it plumb out of the vacant lot, across the street, in a vacant lot on the other side of the street, and he starts dropping his bat and starts running toward first. And he rounds first and he looks and they still hadn't picked the ball up yet. He rounds second, he's going to third, he looks back as he's running, they still hadn't got it yet. He starts home and he makes it across home plate. He's just hit a home run and this kid throws this ball in and they touch the base and they say, you're out. And he says, I don't understand. I ran around the bases. That's a home run. I touched home plate. But you don't understand. One of the guys stopped him, put his hand on his shoulder. You don't understand. I'm sorry you hadn't seen all the rules yet. You see, this vacant lot is so small, we started out with the kids playing. But see, sometimes when the grown-ups play, they can knock a ball so far that it's hard for the children to go bring the ball in before they run all the way around the bases. So for grown-ups that can hit it so far and run so fast, we made a rule. If you're going to play ball with us, the grown-ups have to run around the base twice. He says to himself, that's the stupidest thing I've heard of in my life. Everybody knows that when you hit a ball and you make it all the way around the bases back to home base, you have just hit a home run. And they said, nope. That's the last out, so you'll have to play in the outfield now. And the guy walked away from home plate thinking, that's not fair. That's not fair at all. Everybody knows that everywhere that's the way ball is played. You run around the bases one time, you got a home run. 
And he went back to complain to the guy that explained it to him. The guy said, not here you don't. That don't work here. That's not our rules. This is the way we play the game. You can see the reason we do it. It makes perfect sense to us. God's game is salvation. And it's God's game. This thing we're playing, this game we got into, and you, I use the term game because I've seen some folks really that are more feel like it, sports games are more important than a game they got going with God. And it's not really a God, a game. But the seriousness which some of us have for it, it could be. God invented this game called salvation. He designed the field. He put the bases where he wanted them. And he wrote the rule book. This is it right here. It's a big thick rule book. When we got in the game like this traveling salesman, we didn't realize all the rules. And there are times when we run into things that personally we think is unfair. Why would God do something like that? And there are those who try to take God's word and change it a little bit. So it makes it more politically correct or more acceptable or more appealing or less harsh to someone who is tender-hearted. But with all the sacrifices that God planned in the Old Testament, some people have called Christianity a bloody religion. And it's true. But God did that too. We've gotten away from a lot of that blood. I can remember as a child, Mama saying, catch that chicken right there. But now as soon as you chop his head off, you get away from him now. I don't have time to wash that blood out of your clothes. They didn't think anything about it. In 60 or 70 years, I've got two daughters probably that if they had to catch and wring a chicken's neck and dress it to eat chicken, they'd probably eat bologna. It comes up real nice in a little package. It's already sliced and everything. But think for a moment the blood that was involved with everything people ate 100 years ago, 150 years ago. It was a whole different culture. And we probably are a little bit worse off because of the way we are. When I got in this game, nobody told me. They told me that if I believed and accepted the gospel of Jesus Christ as truth, that I would go to heaven. 
and I would be with Jesus and God from now on, and God would take care of all my sins. Nobody told me about all this other. They didn't tell me about the turmoil in the churches that I've been in. They didn't tell me the way some of the folks acted who were in churches who claimed to be children of Jesus, brothers and sisters to Jesus. Nobody told me about that. But yet we live through it with the grace that Jesus Christ gives us to live with each other. But the thing is, this book was put together about 2,000 years ago, part of it. Part of it was put together before that. But once we join the team and we get a uniform with the name of the team on the back of it, we can't change the way the game is played. No way we can. The same way it was played when Jesus left this earth 40 days after he was crucified is the same game for today. And all the things that are written about it are the same. And you can twist them or torque them or turn them any way you want to. It still means the same thing that it did. The home run in our game that we play with Jesus is to find out what this book means. Not exactly how it says it, because you've experienced, I've experienced, I try to make sure that the definition of all terms are put into modern day English so we'll know what they were talking about then and not be confused about it. But the goal of each one of us should find out, should be to find out exactly what this book means and then try as best we can to live by it. That's what David said he was trying to do. And he didn't have the New Testament. There was a bumper sticker a long time back. I can remember it. It said, God said it, I believe it, and that settles it for me. And some people in the church I was in said, that's, that's not true at all. Everybody was talking about that bumper sticker because it was one of the first denominational bumper stickers that came out because they were saying God said it and that settles it for you whether you believe it or not God's word does not depend on whether I believe it or not I said last week about Thomas Jefferson cutting all the miracles and the supernatural stuff out of his Bible after he retired he had a little time and he did that well you see whatever he cut out of his Bible was not there for him Whatever you read in this Bible that you do not believe is not there for you. It doesn't matter whether it was put in there or not. God put it in there for us that we might be and become possibly what he wanted us to become. But let me explain something. And I gave you one example here of Proverbs Chapter 21 and verse 13. 
It's all over the Bible. God is asking us, pretty pleased with sugar on it, a lot of times, would you please, as my children do this? But there's always somewhere a coinciding verse that says, if you don't do what I ask you to do with sugar on it, I'm going to see to it that you do. <laughs> and you will. It says in Proverbs, Whoso stoppeth his ears at the cry of the poor, he also shall cry out himself, but he shall not be heard. God says, You know, I said over there, do unto others as you'd have them to do unto you. People say that. Most of them smile when they say that because they know that's what we're supposed to do, but they also know that most people don't do that. (laughs) They look out for themselves. But that's the way God deals with us. He says, I will deal with you like you deal with others. You remember the first heading for this series of sermons? They asked him, Jesus, what the two most important verses were. And he said that you love the Lord your God with all your soul, mind, and spirit and love your neighbor as yourself. And I said that if you love your neighbor as yourself, you've got to treat him better than you treat yourself. How much does it take for your neighbor to get you riled at him because of something he does or says where there's no way you treat him better than you treat yourself? Matthew 7, 12, All things whatever ye would that men should do to you, do ye also to them. Do unto others. Somebody's paraphrase it like you'd have them do unto you. That's the way it's supposed to be. We get an opportunity here, folks, to design our own relationship with Jesus Christ. You know, it happened. You know, David, that old prophet, went up and shook his bony finger in David's face. And gave him a parable. And David said, that man that you talked about in the story needs to be killed. He said, you're the man. (laughs) You did it. You're the one that sinned. Is that what you want me to do with you? And David fell down on his knees and asked God for repentance and forgive him for his sin. Sometimes we don't realize what we do affects other people like it does. We design our own relationship with God. Essentially, and take if you, you need to, you can take my word for this. From what I've learned in this book, God all the way through this book treats you like you treat other people. But most of us probably would rather have him treat us like he says he will treat us if we do other people the right way. But we don't always do that. 
How serious are we about living in this game of life called a Christian life, called salvation? And would we be happy if we knew that God was treating us the same way we treat everybody else? We see sometimes that we're really not doing that. And like I said, we try to change a little bit of the word. I can remember people saying, well, all have, when you bring sin in front of somebody, their usual response is, yeah, but you know, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. I said, I've heard that till I'm sick of it. We all know that. Nobody has to make an excuse for sinning. We know we're going to sin and we ought to be honest about it and say, yes, sir, that's me. I do that. But you see, that's the reason I've got Jesus. I can ask forgiveness. He'll forgive me. Frank Sinatra had a song one time. You probably remember it. Most of you here are old enough to remember Frank and some of his big hits. He had a song that said, I did it my way. Y'all remember that? Well, in God's game, you can't do it your way. You got to do it God's way. And it's not always easy to do it that way. God will cause you to suffer through change. But you've got to understand, God is in the changing business. As soon as we accept the gospel of Jesus Christ, God, through Jesus Christ and the work of the Holy Spirit, start trying to change us to be more like Jesus. And that sanctification process, that cleaning up of us, lasts until we're face to face with Him in glory. He never stops. And sometimes we put our foot down and say, I'm not going to change. He said, okay, wait around, you'll change. <laughs> and then he goes into something else to see that we do. A little pain, a lot of pain. It's up to us. I want to go through, be stubborn and go through a lot of pain. I'll tell you this, I'll admit personally that I have. Jesus spoke to me through the Holy Spirit and said, the reason I'm so rough on you is because you're so blooming hard-headed. And he said, blooming too. You're so blooming hard-headed. And I was. And so he had to deal with me that way. Maybe you're not that way. I pray that you're not. But I tell you this, Jesus will get his change in you one way or another. He explains that in the 12th chapter of Hebrews. He does whatever it takes in order that you might become perfect. I used to listen to J. Vernon McGee and Oliver Green. I don't know if y'all remember those old preachers. They were the ones that explained the Bible for so many years 
but one of them, I can't remember which, had an expression, talked about when the rubber meets the road. Well, we get along, we go to church, everything's happy, everybody's doing well, but then there comes a time when the rubber meets the road and boy, it gets down to where it's tough. Well, I didn't know what that expression meant. I looked it up. It was an old Uniroyal tire ad. We've got the best tire in the world where the rubber meets the road. And they went on to explain in commercials how bad sometimes it is on that tire with that road, right there where the two come together. How you've got gravel and you've got pavement and you've got some smooth and some rough, tears your tires all up, scrapes and leaves rubber all up and down the road with these kids playing with them. How you run over something in the road and poke a hole in your tire. Sometimes it's tough where the rubber meets the road. But in our game with God, in our relationship with God, there gets to be some tough time when the rubber meets the road. You'll run into situations that are not easy to get out of at all. And I'll tell you this, just like old Jacob got in that fight, with, I believe it was Jesus, never did say for sure, an angel of God or Jesus won the angel of God before he was put on the earth. Jacob came out of that fight with a scar. He limped the rest of his life. Now something I've learned from my confrontations with God over the years of wanting to have my way, you always get a scar. You always come out of a, of a tussle with God with a scar somewhere, somehow, either in your mind or on your body somewhere or something. With Jacob, that angel reached up and caught him on the inside of his thigh and tore a muscle away from a bone and he limped the rest of his life. Paul got in a confrontation with God and Paul had bad eyes. He was blinded, but when he got his sight back, it wasn't all, it didn't all of it come back. He was always blind to some extent. And everybody in the Bible that confronts with God has got a scar from that confrontation. When we get stubborn and say, I'm not going to do it. Paul has an expression in Romans chapter 15, or chapter 9, verse 15. He introduces something there that he discerns that people are not going to like. It's an ideology of God, a plan of God. And he mentions in that plan that, that when Esau and Jacob were in the womb together, he said, I will love Jacob and I will hate Esau. And people say, but wait a minute, that's not fair. And Paul knew that the people who read that, after that was put in Scripture, their first reaction would be, hey, that's not fair. 
And he asked the question, is there unrighteousness with God? Are you saying that God made a mistake? That God's not a square guy? That he's not 100% honest? That he's not a perfect God to worship? God forbid, he says. God forbid that you should think that God made a mistake. I've learned, I hope I got long enough to live to keep telling it. My experience has been that I cannot find one single solitary thing wrong in this book. And that's all we got to go by, folks. Oh, it's been translated several times. I go back as far as I can because every time they translate something, they change it a little bit, and I don't particularly care for those changes. But this is what we got. This is all we got. He says, if a thief tries to get in the sheepfold any other way than by coming through the front door, he shows himself to be a thief. If you're going to be honest, you've got to walk through the front door and say, here I am, God. Do what you want to do with me. I'm not a thief. I'm not going to sneak around to the back like Satan does. I'll walk in the front door and meet you head on and say, do with me what you want me to do and I'll do the best I can to comply with it. That's the only way we got, folks. It's God's game that we're playing. He designed every bit of it, and he did it before he ever even invented the world or Adam and Eve or anything in it. And he hadn't changed it. They don't have a rules committee meeting every couple times a year and decide this rule's no good. They need to make a better one. His rule book has been the same for over 2,000 years. So we're playing his game, whether we like it or not, whether we like every bit of it or not. But I tell you this, I would not change one iota of my life in the 71 years I have lived with Jesus for anything else. Sometimes I thought it was kind of rough and kind of hard, but when I got time to get on by it and look back, it was always the best. And what I'm doing with you is confirming to you that the best thing you can do is believe everything in that book, what it means, and then try to live it. And with that, you will absolutely have a life that you can brag to other people about that God wanted you and he treated you special. Let's pray. Father, a sermon calls like that for nothing but just to brag on you. And I praise you for who you are and the plan that you came up with. That people like us, people made out of the most common thing in the world, just plain old dust, would be able to live in heaven. To be able to see Jesus face to face and to experience 
a life forever with no problems. Lord, I know that's true. So then I ask you, when I run into a problem down here, put a smile on my face. I have told people, don't let anything you're involved in, don't let anybody you're involved with take the smile off your face. So Lord, keep us smiling. Give us discernment to avoid things that are not going to be good for us and not going to do anything for us anyhow. And Lord, we'll praise you continually and give you the credit for everything you do in our life. Thank you for Jesus again, in whose name I pray. Amen.